With that in mind, I wanted to um, begin this year um, taking a break again from Acts and to go over a few sermons, understanding what it means to have a new year, but knowing that we have the same God and that God remains the same. Um, One of the things that I think we all know that happens every year is that each year as it incomes, you know, we have really grand expectations that are all based essentially on how we want the external reality of our lives to change. So we would like to have better friendships with with our friends, better relationships with our families. We would like to have more money. We set more goals, uh, perhaps get a spouse if we don't have one, perhaps Hopefully our spouse will improve if we do have one. So we set all these goals in the reality of our lives. But very often those those goals are set without any acknowledgement of any relationship that we should have with God. In other words, instead of us consulting God about how we can be more pleasing to him in the upcoming year, what we have the the typical thing for us to do is to set all these goals and then tell God, God, you must acquiesce to the goals that I've set for my life. Now, this is not entirely our faults because in a world where we see vision boards and hashtag goals and all these things that tell us that we have to be better, we have to be ambitious, we have to achieve, we have to do this, it is not uncommon for us to allow that to seep, not just in our ideology of life, but even our theology of God. And so what has happened with many of us is that every new year, we have some haughty, lofty expectation of God, not based on anything that the word of God says, but because of the realities of everything else that we see going on in the world. So what do we do? We decide, like we do every year, I was discontented with the year before. Now, we never remember how excited we were coming into that new year. We always know that I need to get out of this year, and perhaps last year more than any other year hopefully provided for us perspective. I do remember how excited people were to get into the year 2020, and very early on, we saw tragedy after tragedy, unexpected death after unexpected death, We were quarantined, we saw pandemic, we saw death, we saw loss, we saw racial tensions. And so what I'm hoping that we learn more than anything else is that our hope, our peace, our joy, our foundation cannot merely be in our expectations of our external realities. Because if that's the case, we will never be satisfied. Not only will we never be satisfied, we will never find joy, we will never find peace, and we will never find the consistency of a healthy relationship with God. And so all of this has led us to believe more in human sovereignty and God's obedience. God, if I can wish it, think it, and dream it, I can be it. That's what the world tells us. And the world tells us that you must be the best version of yourself. So let me tell you, if your goal, based on what the world has instructed you to do and be, if your goal is simply to be the best version of yourself, you have already made a mistake. Let me tell you why. One the best version of yourself doesn't exist, okay? As long as we are in this sinful, wicked world with sinful flesh, the best version of ourselves can never exist on this earth. The best version of ourselves is being reserved for us when we will get new glorified heavenly bodies in eternity. That is the best version of ourselves. How do we know that? Because the Bible says not only will we see him, we will be like him. So this cannot be the best version of myself, nor do I desire for, the, for this to be the best version of myself. 
Our hearts are too sinful and wicked for that to happen. That's the first thing. The second thing is, even if there were a best version of yourself, you could never see it. So you wouldn't even know if each individual decision that you are making is leading you into the path of the best version of yourself or the worst version of yourself. So that means there must be an external source of benevolence, an external source of holiness, an external source of righteousness that cannot be me, one to which I can aspire. And that has all been found in one perfect and sinless man, namely Jesus Christ. So in order for us to have peace and joy and thanksgiving and hope, and rest in this year or any time of our lives, there must be a perceivable goal to which we are getting to. But I'm here to tell you that if you think that goal has anything to do with what's happening on earth, you are wrong. Not only are you wrong, but you will be incredibly miserable trying to live out hashtag goals in this earth. The only trajectory we should be on in our lives is to every day be less like ourselves and more like Christ. And so if we do that, we will live such rich and fulfilled lives. And this is the secondary component of the gospel. We all know that the gospel is that Jesus Christ came down to be the perpetuation, the sacrifice, the saving atonement for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be absolved from the penalty of our sins. That's why Jesus Christ came. But the secondary component to the gospel is that if we devote our lives to him on this earth, we will be happy. We will be fortunate. We will have joy. We will be blessed. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to start with the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, when Jesus speaks about the perspective that we should have. And we're going to start this um, series throughout the beginning of the year so that you should know that the key to you having any hope in any year has nothing to do with the year, has nothing to do with your finances, it has nothing to do with where you live, your career, your spouse, and of those things. It has everything to do with your ability to see Jesus Christ clearly and pursue him. So to do that, we're looking at Matthew beginning with Matthew chapter 5. Verse number one, Matthew chapter five, verse number one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Finally, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for um, the word. God, we do earnestly thank you that we have made it into the new year. Um, whether we um, would have passed on or made it, God, it would have been to your glory. So. The reason that you have us here is so that you can be glorified in our lives, God, so that we can share the truth, so that we can be the salt and the light of the earth, God. It is not for our own glory. It is not for our own selfish ambition. But the only reason that we are here, God, is so that we can glorify you. That is our chief end, man's chief end, God, is to glorify you, but also to enjoy you 
always. So God, we pray that in this sermon we will learn how to glorify you in every day of our lives, but also enjoy you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in the book of Matthew, Jesus preaches eight recorded sermons, and like I said, he starts with the best sermon he's ever preached. Now you're thinking, how can you say Jesus preached one better sermon? He didn't really, but this one is my favorite. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us every doctrinal and theological point we could ever get about life. It is the best sermon by the best preacher that's ever been known. But Jesus does something that is immaculate, which is he preaches this sermon well over 2,000 years ago, but because he's so practical in his teaching that we can still preach and learn and glean from this sermon even today. That is the the true testament of God incarnate. He's able to preach so effectively and so emphatically. So, with that being the case, knowing that the sermon is over 2,000 years old, why in talking about a new year are we talking about such an old sermon? Because I tend to think that too often, because we start the year off with new goals, we are often trying to start the year off with new foundations. And that is a critical mistake. First of all, if you know anything about a house, if you want to fix the house, you don't rebuild the foundation. You rebuild what's on top of the foundation. If your desire as a believer is to be a better Christian this year, you don't uproot what God has already done in your salvation But you do revisit what the foundation is. And I think that is the critical mistake that we make is that because things do not work out in our lives the way that we think they should have worked out, we point to Jesus Christ and view him as the issue. That's not the case. He never changes. He is so consistent. So if that is the case, then that means any reality that needs to change in our lives cannot be him. It has to be us. Let's look at our text. Matthew makes note that Jesus sits down. Now, that seems like a very moot point, but it's very significant Because the reason that Jesus sits down is because that's what every rabbi would do before they talk. So it tells us not only is Jesus considered a rabbi, but he actually has a legitimate following. Not only that, but that also means that the words that he is speaking are authoritative. And so when he begins in this text, nine times does Jesus say, blessed are followed by some characteristic. Blessed are they that this, blessed are they that this. But I want you to notice here that, and we've talked about this before when we looked at Psalms, when he's talking about blessed, this goes well beyond our foolish, traditional, common understanding of what it means to be blessed. This is not about something that God does for you, some materialistic thing that you receive from him, thereby you are blessed. That's a very surface understanding of what it means to be blessed and quite frankly has nothing to do with true blessing is from God. What Jesus means when he says blessed, he is talking about an actual state of being that one does not generate from themselves. This is not about finding inner peace. This is about looking at the outer God, the external reality of who God is, and finding hope and peace in him. And so when he uses this word, he is saying happy, fortunate, blissful, spiritually that is, are you who follow God. So, This isn't just something you are because of what you receive, but he is describing the ongoing state of being for every person who says that they are a Christian. What it really means to be blessed. 
Now, it is not what is given. It is who we are. That's what it means to be blessed. It is who you are, who you stand for in your relationship with Christ. Now, this is completely in contrast to the world's definition of what it means to be blessed. In fact, this is what the world says. This is who is blessed in the world. It is the high. It is the haughty. It is the the vainglorious, the ambitious, the self-motivated, the individual, the person who's cutthroat, the person who will step on anybody to get to the top. Thereby, they are who the world says are the most successful, the most admirable, and the most blessed. But who does Jesus say are the the most blessed? He says it's the lowly. It's the meek. It's the gentle, those who not only pursue God, but those who also mirror God in their lives. Jesus begins here with a very interesting way to describe somebody who should be pursuing God by saying that they are poor in spirit. And these are one of those things that we just read because we've been reading the Bible for a long time. And we just say, oh, you're poor in spirit. But so many of us believe in the prosperity gospel. So, oh, yeah, but I'm poor in spirit, not poor in reality. Maybe. When Jesus uses the word poor here, that is literally the same word for a pauper, for a beggar. So Jesus is effectively telling us to be a beggar in the spirit. Why? Because the person who is poor in spirit realizes their own spiritual helplessness. To be rich in spirit is to not need God at all. Think of the contrast between a rich person and a poor person. The rich person needs nothing because they have everything they need and want while The poor person would love to just have what they need. And they're in such a vulnerable state that they are dependent on whomever will help them. Now, in the same way, we should not try to be spiritually independent of God. To be poor in spirit means, God, everything that I need has to come from one source, and it's you. I cannot be the only reason that I'm blessed, that I'm happy, that I'm joyous, that I'm peaceful, that I'm fortunate. Who I am cannot be the external reality of my life. We are blessed when we are completely dependent on God. But this is not what the world says. The world says that the ambitious, the high, the haughty, the self-motivated, those are the people who should have the inheritance to the kingdom. They do have an inheritance. And they do have a kingdom. But it's not the kingdom of God. They are effectively building their true kingdoms here on earth. Now, understanding that God wants us to be dependent on him spiritually. Some of us may have never posed this question, but I think it's a valid question. Why? Why does God want me to be dependent on him? Is he egotistical? Is he selfish? Is he vain? Is he conceited? Why do I need to be dependent on God? This is one of those things that I always try to do my best attempt to explain, and I do better explaining it with an analogy than just trying to talk through it, which is think about a child. And essentially, a child from two years up No matter how dependent they should be on their parents, what do they crave most? Independence. They want to do it themselves. No, I got it. I can do it. When, quite frankly, you can't. Now, the reality is, what good parent 
would allow a child that should be totally dependent on them to be independent. Not a single one. Why? Because independence for somebody who cannot be independent means death. In the same way for us, when we try to be all spiritual and we try to look at uh, crystals and we try to do all these outside realities and say, oh, it's manifestations, it's prosperity. That's not God. And you're trying to do everything you can to be spiritual, independent of the only spiritual being in the world, and that's God. And so what it does, instead of making you more spiritual, it slowly kills us to attempt to be independent of God. So you are spiritually happy and fortunate and blissful when you are completely reliant on God. Those are the true children of God. And the kingdom is the inheritance only for his children. Heaven is not a reward, people. It's not something we've earned. It's something that we have been given. He has given this to us as an inheritance because we are his adopted sons and daughters. There is no room in the kingdom of God for conceit. There is no room for vainglory. There is no room for pride. It is the instrument of those who want to build their kingdoms here and now. That's what those are used for. Now, I want to go a little further with this so that we can have a good amount of clarity. When we are lowly in our spirits, then we find little fulfillment in the temporal things of life. I mean, literally. Not figuratively, like we literally find little fulfillment in the temporal things in life. When your chief aim and goal is to find glory in God, to find fulfillment in God, what you drive does not define you, nor does it make you feel like you are anything. Where you work or your position is not a means of fulfillment. Because none of those things will fulfill you the way that God fulfills you. How much money you make will not satisfy you when your chief aim is to be satisfied in God and God alone. So the temporal things that matter to the world, they don't matter to Christians. Now, we think that if we disregard how much money we make and where we work and how we look, that we're not going to be as happy. But that is the trick in the life of Satan. When you focus only on what God wants for you and your life and glorifying him, you will find that nothing will fulfill you the way that God fulfills you. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to prevent to happen in all of our lives. Now, when he said for us to be poor, in spirit, I want to revisit that. I want you to think very literally about a poor person, not the people who like work shifts on the corners because they don't want to work. I'm talking about people who are actually poor beggars in, in the world, in our world. When you stop and you talk to one of them, they don't ask you for a steak. They don't ask you for a medium fillet. They say, I just need food. I just need food. Can you meet the need that I have? Because they're poor. They can't ask for more. They just need the need met. Those who need shelter, they don't ask you, do you have a mansion for me to live in? They will stay anywhere that will give them a roof over their heads, even if that roof is leaking. Why? Because that's the need. They are poor, and so they need the need met. They don't need it elaborate. They don't need it fancy. They don't have to be glorious. It just needs to meet the need. For us to be poor, beggars in spirit, 
we should seek nothing more from God than God. That's it. We're not bogged down by begging him for the superficialities of this world, but we should just want him. In short, we should be desperately poor and in need for God. The next group that he talks about is those who mourn. Um, and the interesting thing about this verse is that this is probably, out of all of these, the one that has uh, been a problem for people contextually the most. Because this is not talking about people who literally are sorrowful or grieve, grieving over hurt or loss. But very specifically, he is talking about those who mourn and sorrow and grieve over their sins. That's what it's talking about. Blessed are you who mourn over your sins in a way that leads to repentance. That's the full context of what Jesus is saying. And then what happens? You will be comforted. Why is that? Because for a Christian, we should grieve, we should mourn over our sins. And they are every pre ever present in our lives. Every single day, we all sin in thought, word, and deed in some type of way. But the true testament of a Christian is one who does not dismiss their sins as another little mistake. It is those who are irritated by it, who are grieving over their sins, who are mourning over their sins, but not just mourning, as Paul said, as the world does. So the world can feel guilt, the world can feel shame, and it does nothing about the behavior. We as Christians should mourn and grieve in a way that pushes us to turn away from the instrument of our sins. And what happens then? You will be comforted. That's a beautiful thing. So I want you to think about yourself and your life and perhaps your misery in the past years. Is there some overcoming sin in your life that as opposed to grieving and mourning and turning from it in your life? Once the guilt and the shame is gone, you turn right back to it. Do you know the misery that comes in many of our lives is that we have not gained freedom in particular areas of sin in our lives. And so the misery of our lives is that we keep going back to it and we feel that same shame and that same guilt, but not enough to actually make us repent. Do you know that's why so many of us are miserable? And we think New Year... I'm going to set a new goal. I'm not going to look at that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. And what happens? Two, three months in, because you were motivated by the goal, as opposed to being pleasing to God himself, you fall right back into the same sin. What am I trying to get you to understand? I'm trying to get you to understand that much of the misery of our lives has nothing to do with what God isn't doing. It's us. And he has provided for us the foundation to a rich, fulfilled life in him on this earth, and we miss it. And we think next week will be better. Tomorrow I feel better. Next year is going to be great. In 10 years I'll be this, and the reality is, if your proximity with God is not increasing in your life, nothing is actually changing. Look at what Isaiah 4 and 1 says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The next portion that we discuss, we discuss the meek. Now, the gentle, meek, 
characteristic of a Christian is probably the most underemphasized attribute of all of the Christian life. When Jesus says that it's the meek that will inherit the earth, he is actually quoting from Psalms 37 and 11. Now, what's the context there? The meek are not just those who are gentle. That is one component to it. But the meek are also those who wait on God. That is the meek, those who wait for the Lord. Now, what is meant by waiting for the Lord? Let me make it very plain for you so that you can understand how it may affect you in your own life. The meek are not those who just have to go out and make their way. The meek are not those who have to use underhanded tactics to get ahead in life. The meek are not those who have to manipulate or even trying to buy a car, moving money around, trying to count, okay, if I don't eat out this amount of times, I can barely afford to know. Those are, that's not the meek. The meek are those who say, if God desires to provide this particular thing for me, he will provide it and it will not be strenuous for me to manage. Those are the meek. I'm waiting on God if he so decides to do this thing, to do it. I'm not making it happen. That's what it means to be meek. They are not engaged in all types of aggressive ploys and tactics in order to gain leverage in life. That's not emblematic of a Christian. Look at what Psalms 37 and 5 says right before Psalm 37 and 11. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And what will happen? He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices refrain from anger and forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. That is an amazing verse, because essentially what the psalmist here is saying that even if there is a person in the world who is prospering in their wickedness, don't fret about it. Don't worry about it, because the tendency is that it will only lead you into sin. Because what are you going to do? You're going to try to gain some capital because you see them prospering in a way that you aren't. And so even if what you are saying about them or what you know about them is true, it doesn't mean you're justified in spreading the truth in order that you get ahead. That's not characteristic of the meek. How often have we heard seen or been guilty of being a Christian who is in the workplace and who is sneaky and conniving and uses manipulation and lying and even scandal to gain leverage on somebody else, particularly somebody they don't like. Not just this, but we see this very thing done in church and people actually say that they are doing the work of the Lord. I don't care if you work in a Christian environment or if you are in a church, if you use any underhanded method, anything that Jesus would not do in order to get ahead, you are not doing the work of the Father. You are doing the work of Satan. This is actually what Jesus tells the Jews in John. They said, our father is Abraham. He says, no, he's not. If your father was Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. He said, but you do the works of your true father, which is Satan. Very often, those of us who are said to be Christians use the exact same methods that Satan uses. 
and think that anything that we will do in any position we got because of our manipulation, that it would be glorious to God. This is exactly what Satan did from the beginning. Before Adam and Eve, he saw the glory and the majesty and the righteousness and the kingdom of God, saw it and said, I want it, and did whatever he could to get ahead. How in our own lives, and I really mean you to ask yourself this question, how in our own lives have we tried to get ahead by demeaning, invalidating, or even undervaluing the, the work of somebody else so that we could get ahead of them. Even in the wrongdoing of others, have we been our own source of justice or have we waited for God to work and to avenge, giving place to his wrath and not our own? Christians do not have a cutthroat, ambitious, unforgiving demeanor. We should look at our lives the way we saw that Jesus acted even in his death. Jesus on the cross was meek and forgiving right until his last breath. That is the model. Next, they talk about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what I like about the translation here from the Greek is that it is the hungering ones, the thirsting ones, those whose hunger and thirst for God continues, who find no fulfillment in that hunger and thirst and anything else. You can see here the clear connection to those who are poor in spirit, by the way. Being spiritually impoverished means that he creates in you this intense hunger and thirsting and desire and one that only God can feel. Remember the woman at the well. She's there at the hottest portion of the day because of the life that she lived. And she says, I came here to get a drink because I thirst. And Jesus says, yes, but I can give you water, living water that will cause you to never thirst again. That is the beautiful component of our righteousness in God. When we pursue it, when we pursue his righteousness and we thirst and hunger after it, we will, as the scripture says, be satisfied. All of us have eaten a meal when we were hungry and though it filled us, we were not satisfied with the way it tasted. That is not the case with God. When he fills us, not only does he fill us, but he satisfies us. Now, this pursuit of God's righteousness was in contrast to the pursuit of the Pharisees who were just chasing their own righteousness. So what's the difference? Righteousness from self, hear this, righteousness from self is satisfied through comparison to the lives of others. You are only as good as the worst person you know. And so when you are pursuing righteousness that comes from you and you alone, the only way you will be satisfied is when you see somebody not doing as well as you are. And that's misery. But what does it mean when you pursue God's righteousness? Righteousness from God is satisfied only by the never-ending constant and self-sacrificing pursuit of God above all things. And that's the beautiful truth in this promise that you will be satisfied. Not just satisfied, but your life will be fulfilled. So if that's the case, why aren't we satisfied? And I mean, I'm, I'm legitimately asking that. Why are we, who are supposed to be Christians, so unsatisfied with life? For many of us, this is the reason why. 
God is a reasonable means to an end. Pursuing God for many of us is getting what I really want, but not him. Giving me all the benefits of God. I don't want God. And for the pers- that person in this year or the next, you'll never be satisfied. The equation is simple. If you pursue God, you will be satisfied. If not, You will never be satisfied. Next, he talks about the merciful. The merciful will receive mercy. The Christian with a new spiritual outlook shows mercy, love, grace, patience, and long-suffering. All of which are the sum total of the attributes of what it means to be merciful. Why is the new outlook of the Christian to be merciful? Because they have received mercy. Therefore, they show mercy, and because of that, they continue to receive mercy as well. And what James 2 and 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Those who will be judged mercilessly by God are those who have neither shown mercy nor received it. We will always in our lives, every single one of us, will have opportunities to either render a judgment on people based on the lives that they live and their performance or show them mercy. When we are merciless, When people make mistakes, when we are merciless in arguments, in offenses, even in injustices, this is what we think. To show them mercy means that there is no justice. But you're wrong. Jesus provides mercy for us on the cross and it is the very mercy of Jesus Christ that allows for true justice to happen. How? Because on the cross, Jesus gave for all of us, no matter the level and the extreme of your sin, he gave all of us an out from the judgment and the justice and the punishment from God. He gave us all equally an out from the wrath of God. All of us. And for those of us who believe we are absolved from ever having to pay a single dime for our sins. But those of us who have rejected his great act of mercy have flung the door of judgment and justice wide open. And for those of us who reject it, must walk through that door. Because of his act of mercy, when it is rejected, you will see the justice and judgment of God. So in your own life, thinking that we are to be merciful, do you have to see justice done Or are you willing to be merciful for people even when they don't meet the standard that you set for them? But not only this, if you say, I'm not changing the way I think, Brandon. If you have to see justice done in your life for every injustice, then guess what? Not only do you expect to receive the justice for every injustice that's been done against you, That means you as well should expect God's justice for every injustice you did against him. Is that really what you want? No. We want mercy. And if we want the mercy of God, we must be willing to display his mercy. The last two, and we're done, the pure in heart and the peacemakers. Psalms 24 and 3, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then jump into Hebrews 12 and 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the, holy, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's another one that's out of context, but... We are looking at the natural transition here of those who are pure in heart and those who are peacemakers. And so what we're doing here, doing here is we're treating our Psalms text as the A clause. We're treating the Hebrews text as the B clause. The Hebrews text is the B clause, which is to see God. The end result is to see God. How do you see God? You only see God when you have a pure heart. How do those who have pure hearts get their pure hearts? It's a little bit of a conundrum. They have seen God. The only way you can have a pure heart is that God has sovereignly revealed himself to you in a way that you could not do for yourself. Therefore, you have seen God. Because you have seen God, as the Bible tells us, he gives us new hearts. We are not the same person we were before we were saved. And because he has given us a pure heart, we can clearly see him to pursue him. So that means there are no superficialities, there are no deeds, there are no rituals, nothing that we can do independent of God that will bring us into the presence of God. So how do you personally know if your heart is pure? It's really two questions that you have to ask about everything you do, not just in general, about every little decision you make. Why do you do what you do? And for whom do you do what you do? Those are the primary questions. Why do I want to buy this particular thing? Really? You think, you think this is such a big deal? No, I, like, I wrestle in my brain about the smallest things because the decision I have to make between everything I do, is this for me or is it for him? Is it for my glory or is it for the glory of God? There is no in between. The peacemakers then, because we are pure in heart and we desire peace with all men, he says that we are the sons and daughters of God. Why? Think about this. Ultimately, that's what the Son of God came to do. The ultimate work of Jesus Christ was that he was reconciling people who were not at peace with God to be at peace with God. He, on the cross, was making peace for all of us who were opposed to him. He was loving, making peace with those of us who were not even seeking peace. This is what it means to be a peacemaker after the heart of Jesus Christ. You don't just do it passively, but you must do it aggressively and actively. Jesus actively gave up his life to bring peace to those who did not even want peace. As believers, we should be actively seeking to cause peace to happen in our lives. So have we been peacemakers or instigators in our lives? When angry, hurt, frustrated, do we feel what Jesus felt about us? Yes, whomever you may have issues with, they may be the way they are because they're not at peace with God. And what we have to realize is that in order for me to be at peace with them, they have to be at peace with God. You can be that bridge. You can be that peacemaker. Finally, the persecuted and the reviled. Why does Jesus conclude with this, that it is the blessed who are still persecuted and reviled? Jesus is telling all of us that who didn't even know this, they didn't have that revelation yet, that everything that has been described so far was him. It was Jesus. Every single attribute, all nine of them, those are Jesus. Now, you may notice there's some symmetry here 
in the nine attributes that he mentions here and the fruit of the Spirit. In all of these, you find the very same attributes. That's the key. Everything that Jesus was mentioning here was his life. From the top to the bottom, this was the life of Jesus, and he knew exactly how his life would end. He would be hated and mocked and reviled and lied on, but it was to the glory of the Father. Why? Because we don't receive our reward here. We are not looking for our reward here. Look at what John 15 and 18 says. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word, the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all, thing, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. In the Bible, we are told about two storages. There is storage that Romans tells us about that the wicked who prosper on this earth have. That those who think that God's judgment is escaping them, that he's actually storing up his wrath. Which is one of the most frightening verses you can ever read. That I could be living apart from God thinking that I'm perfectly fine and he's actually just storing up his wrath for me. But the righteous who suffer have a storage that's not here. It's in eternity. And the Bible says, store up your rewards and treasures in heaven where the moth doesn't come and destroy it and eat it up and, and the rust doesn't corrupt it. We are all in one or two positions. We are either storing up for ourselves the wrath of God, which will be poured out on us, or all the rewards that we are bypassing in this life are awaiting us in eternity. This persecution that we face as believers is for the sake of Christ. It is for the cause of Christ. And your suffering and your persecution is the stamp of approval of God's hand on your life. Why? Because Jesus, God in the flesh, was persecuted, crucified. The prophets, the very messengers of God, were persecuted and often stoned. And many of the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, were persecuted. Many of them were beheaded. Peter was crucified. His wife was crucified. John was cast to the island of Patmos to the end of his life. That's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. What is Jesus' conclusive theme in this portion of Scripture? This is it. Your joy, your fulfillment, your completeness in this year and in all of your life will come only as you imitate Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That's the word.